It is time for January Patreon birthdays, and I want to send big birthday shout-outs to Jacob, Angela, Heather, Gabrielle, Martina, Tuesday, Tasha, Donna, Nicole, Catherine, and Jonathan. Thank you so much for your support over on Patreon, and I hope you have a wonderful wintry, or I guess summery if you're on the other side of the world, birthday season. Happy birthday. The Amana Axe murder sounds like a case that would have happened in 1910, but it happened in 1980, and in spite of developments in DNA, it remains unsolved. But two similar cases point to a single suspect with an odd signature. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. This case that we're talking about today is one that I first found when I was doing TikToks on historical true crime cases, and I wanted to look into this one more and realized there was plenty here for a full episode. If you didn't know, I am on TikTok. I'm not doing any dancing or lip syncing. Last year, I did Today in True Crime History short videos that you can see also on YouTube and Instagram. But I decided for this year to change how I'm doing things on social media and focus more on missing persons cases and cold cases that need more attention, like this one. It has gotten more attention in recent years. The show DNA of a Murder did an episode on this, as well as the podcast Scene of the Crime, which devoted an entire season to this case. Scene of the Crime is a deep dive multi-parter series, so I'll leave the link in the show notes. It's hosted by Jamie Rice from the Murderish podcast, so perfect podcast voice, and they get very deep into all of the theories and angles that the police explored over the years. So this case starts in St. Joseph, Missouri, which is an hour north of Kansas City. 32-year-old Roger Atkinson grew up in St. Joe and had been with his wife, Marcella, since they were teenagers. They met at church in a youth group and married in September 1973, being separated only by his service in the Navy during the Vietnam War. The couple attended the King Hill Baptist Church, and Roger was very active there. He drove the church bus, he sang in the choir, he was teaching the Bible lessons. According to Roger's family, the marriage wasn't entirely a happy one. One major stressor on the couple was that in spite of years of trying, they couldn't get pregnant. But even more than that, Marcella had a very strong personality, and Roger was one who would bend a little bit more easily. And part of this included the decision on staying in the marriage, even when Roger appeared to want to leave it. Divorce would be brought up occasionally and then taken off the table, but that didn't stop Roger from pursuing other relationships. Roger worked for General Telephone just north of St. Joe in Savannah, Missouri. He was an installer and a repairman, meaning he went into the homes to work on people's phone lines. And one phone he installed or repaired in June of 1980 was that of 22-year-old Rose Burkert. Rose was working her way through nursing school as a nurse's aide at a nursing home called Laverna Village, 
though she was set to start a new job in the fall of 1980. With school and work, she was also juggling the care of her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, whose father was not around. The exact details of Roger and Rose's relationship are a question mark because they didn't confide in too many people, but that isn't to say that people didn't know about the affair. This wasn't Roger's first affair and not his first affair with someone he met through his job. Several of his coworkers knew. As for Rose's friends, some knew she was seeing a married man and others knew it was Roger. But it's almost impossible to truly number how many people knew because of the gossip around town. Roger was related by marriage to two or more of his coworkers and others knew him or Rose in other settings. This is a very typical small-town stuff, where six degrees of separation is about four degrees more than is necessary. So some knew because Roger or Rose told them, others knew because Mike told them, or Mike told John, who told Betsy, who told them. You know how it goes. It was getting so that Roger's wife, Marcella, was starting to suspect something. She said she didn't know about Rose specifically or that Roger was seeing a younger woman. And people who knew didn't tell her. They didn't want to hurt her or be seen as interfering in the marriage. At the time Roger started seeing Rose, Marcella and Roger were pursuing fertility treatments on one side and also applying for adoption on the other. But around the time of their anniversary in early September 1980, Marcella was suspecting something was going on. Divorce, however, in Marcella's view, was not an option due to their religious beliefs. About a week or so after their anniversary, Roger left St. Joe on a two-week out-of-town assignment to install telephone lines three and a half hours across the state in Cahoka, Missouri. On Wednesday, September 10th, Rose left her daughter with a friend and went out to Cahoka to meet up with Roger. She told her friend she would be gone a few days and anticipated being home on Saturday the 13th. She even had plans to meet up with a friend that evening. When Rose got to Cahoka, she reportedly registered with the hotel as Roger's wife. Back home, Marcella was getting anxious. She had heard from Roger on Tuesday, but after that, after Rose got out there, he didn't call her. She went out to his brother's house to ask if he knew what was going on, and she said she had a feeling that she would never see Roger again. Roger's brother said Marcella was unusually emotional at this point, but that could have been caused by the fertility medication she was taking, particularly if they were hormone-based. On Friday, September 12th, Roger and Rose left Cahoka in Rose's car and drove north a bit, crossing the state line into Iowa. They wanted a romantic getaway to somewhere they weren't going to run into anyone who knew them. In particular, maybe a coworker who might report the illicit affair to the higher-ups. After driving for about an hour and a half, two hours, they pulled off at a Holiday Inn near the I-80 Amana Interchange, which is just outside Williamsburg, Iowa. They did not have a reservation at the hotel. A friend of Rose's actually thought they were planning to go to Des Moines for the weekend, but Roger's boss had recommended the Amana area. 
When they arrived around 7.40, they learned that the hotel was fully booked due to a convention of funeral directors that had filled up the rooms. But they lucked out because one room had canceled, room 208. They checked in as Mr. and Mrs. Roger Burkert. His first name, her last name. When they got into the room, Rose called her friend who was babysitting to check on her daughter. They weren't in, so she left a message with the person who answered the phone to have them call her back, and she left the hotel phone number. Around 8.30, the friend's husband called the hotel asking to be connected to Rose's room, but Rose and Roger didn't answer the phone. There was a third incoming call to the hotel to their room that night, and it's been reported that it was a male caller. But the name of the caller is either unknown or it just hasn't been released. Likely around 9 p.m., Roger and Rose were asked to move their car. Since the hotel was full when they arrived, there were no parking spots except for the accessible ones. Since they didn't have a tag allowing them to park there, Rose was told she had to find another parking spot. The problem was that there were no other spots, so she pulled into a no-parking zone near the entrance closest to their room. This is the last confirmed movement that night. The next day, on Saturday, September 13th, the housekeeping team went through the hall and passed over room 208 since it had a do not disturb sign on the door. Around noon, which was checkout time, a housekeeper knocked on the door several times without getting an answer. So she used her passkey to get in so she could tidy up the room since she assumed the occupants had checked out and just forgot to remove the sign. When she stepped in, though, she saw luggage on the floor and thought they must not have checked out yet, so she backed out of the room, shutting the door behind her. By a quarter after one, they really did need to get in to clean that room to get it ready for the next guests, so a housekeeper went into the dark room and tried to turn on the overhead light, but it didn't work, so she went over to the desk lamp. That's when she saw what would have looked like two people sleeping in bed, if not for the blood all around. The housekeeper left the room to get help, and after the manager confirmed what she had seen, he called the police. When the authorities arrived, they confirmed that 32-year-old Roger Atkinson and 22-year-old Rose Burkert were dead having been apparently bludgeoned to death with a sharp instrument. Both had been struck in the back of their heads while they were lying face down on the bed, with Rose having been turned over after death. They were both partially under the covers, but Rose had been covered up more than Roger. Rose was also fully dressed, minus shoes and socks, whereas Roger was just in his undershorts. The autopsies would show that the weapon used to kill the couple was a bladed instrument with some weight behind it, like a hatchet or a machete. In spite of some of the reporting that calls this an axe murder, the intensity of the blows didn't support the weapon being something quite as heavy as an axe. 
Roger had seven wounds and Rose had 12. Rose was the lesser threat to the killer, so you have to ask, why was she hit more? Often that indicates that person was the target of the rage. So like I said earlier, this case was looked into on the show DNA of a Murder, and the investigators on that show, who are Paul Holes and Yolanda McCleary, they believe that the evidence showed that it wasn't necessarily because she was targeted. It was because the killer was physically closer to Roger, so he may have had to hit Rose more times since he was reaching over Roger and he didn't have the same leverage. A few of Roger's fingers had been cut and one was severed, so he had, during the attack, reached back to block the blows and protect his head. No bindings were found and there were no signs of bindings on their bodies, like bruising at the wrists or the ankles. It looks like they laid down in the bed while the killer was in the room. So why would they have voluntarily done that? It's possible it was someone they knew who yelled at them to lie down and they didn't feel that they were in serious danger. But it's also possible it was a robber who told them to lie face down and they wouldn't get hurt. So they complied, thinking it might save their lives. There was plenty of evidence that the killer did rummage through their things, and some cash may have been taken. Rose's wallet was found on the bed, and her purse was on the floor. Now, Roger's wallet, though, was the item the most interfered with. So let me set the scene a little bit to explain this rummaging. In the room were three chairs. It appears like they were two dining armchairs and one desk chair. Two of the chairs had been pulled away from the table and up to the bed on the side where Roger was found. It looked almost as though people had sat there, possibly talking to Roger and Rose, who were in the bed. On the floor near the chairs were items from Roger's wallet scattered around, including a photo of his niece that had been torn up. Based on the blood evidence, it looked like the wallet was rifled through prior to the murders. So I can picture Roger and Rose in the bed as this person was methodically going through Roger's wallet, hoping this person would eventually leave. The question was, was this a person they knew? Like I said, some money was taken, but it's hard to believe that there would be this much overkill for a petty robbery. There were no signs of forced entry, which then makes you think they knew their killer. But let's be honest, it's not hard to get someone to open a door at a hotel. Knock and claim to be maintenance or housekeeping or room service, and most people will open the door. There is another theory that maybe when Rose went down to move her car, someone grabbed her in the parking lot and forced her up into the room. That might explain why she was fully dressed, whereas Roger was just in his underwear. But there really isn't evidence one way or the other on this. The hotel manager said that they never would give a key to just anyone who showed up to ask for it, and no one at the front desk remembered anyone coming by to get a key to that room after Rose and Roger had checked in.
As for prints in the room, of course, it was full of smudged and partial prints, being that it was a hotel room that doesn't get deep cleaned after every guest. But there was a partial print found on a pretty significant item, Rose's checkbook. But it has not been matched to anyone in spite of significant efforts. So those are the main things found in the sleeping area. So now let's get to the bathroom. There was a towel on the floor and another on the sink. Also on the sink was a bloodstain where the police believed the killer washed up. There was also a tube of toothpaste. And in the bathtub was toothpaste that had been squirted out of the tube. It also looked like something had been written on the mirror on the back of the bathroom door in soap. And the only thing visible and legible was the word this. But some reports indicate that it looked like more of a message was wiped away. A search of the hotel and the dumpsters did not yield additional evidence and didn't yield the murder weapon. But it's important to note that there is something interesting about this hotel. It was themed. The Amana area is home to the Amana colonies. They were communal villages settled in the 1800s by German immigrants seeking religious freedom. Some people think they're like the Amish, but that's only in that they're from Germany and sought religious freedom in the U.S. They have little else in common. The Amana colonies lived communally for decades, and then they incorporated their brand, so to speak, and their main business became tourism to their community for people to experience their culture, which is very much still connected to 19th century German culture. Old world craftsmanship is something they're known for, so this hotel to support the immersive experience for vacation goers, was decorated somewhat like a barn and had farming tools around. So the police looked at some of the decor items that were bladed to see if one could be the murder weapon. The hotel didn't notice any that were missing, and it's not like they had hatchets laying loose on the ground. These tools were generally mounted, so it would be obvious if it was gone or if someone had taken it and then tried to put it back. So it looks more likely the killer brought the weapon with them and then took it when they left. A search for witnesses yielded little, surprisingly, since it was such a crowded hotel. Around 400 people, including guests and employees, were questioned. Because the room was at the end of the hall, it only shared a wall with one other room, and the occupants of that room hadn't heard anything. There was a rumor going around that Rose went to the hotel bar, and maybe she even had words with the bartender there, but it's not clear where this came from, as the bartender denied it happened. Early on in the investigation, everyone, and I'm talking investigators, family members, friends in St. Joe, people who heard about the case, everyone, was split on theories in the case. Some thought it was a random act of violence. Others leaned towards Rose being the primary target, and others, Roger. 
Eventually, it seemed that everyone began to believe that this was someone known to one or both of them. Investigators even said that this was a Missouri case that just so happened to occur in Iowa. So let's walk down that angle first, and then we'll get into the random killer theory at the end. If this was someone known to Roger or Rose or both, who knew they were planning on leaving town and who knew where they were headed? There were some co-workers of Roger's who knew Rose was staying out with him and knew they were going away for the weekend. His boss even knew Amana was the likely destination. Rose's babysitter knew the exact location, being that Rose called with the hotel number. But she wouldn't have any reason to drive four hours from St. Joe to Williamsburg to kill the couple. If anyone on Roger's side had a motive, it would likely be Roger's wife or her family, so they were looked into extensively. Marcella said she didn't even know where Roger was and thought he was at the job site that weekend. She was cleared of direct involvement pretty early on because she had an alibi. She was babysitting all weekend, and it would have been nearly impossible for her to leave the kids alone for the eight-hour round trip, plus the time it took to murder the couple. She was seen the next morning before 9 a.m., and it's really hard to imagine she would have had the time to do that, even if she left the kids home alone sleeping. Marcella's dad, Floyd, on the other hand, may have been able to do it with or without Marcella's knowledge. Marcella herself has said she could not entirely rule out her father, as he did have a temper and a history of domestic violence. In fact, one of his girlfriends said he made a comment about what had happened to Roger when he was threatening her one time. And another time, after an arrest, he allegedly cried and made vague statements indicating that he might know something about the murders. Marcella even told the DNA of a murder TV show that her father acted oddly when they went to see Roger's body. He told her not to cry as she looked at the body of her dead husband, who was found in a hotel room with another woman. Why didn't he want her to cry? It crossed her mind that maybe he didn't want her to cry because it would make him feel bad for what he had done. So did Floyd somehow drive out to Cahoka and then follow the couple up to Iowa undetected? Or did he have some reason to know where they had stopped for the night? Some people, namely members of Roger's family, didn't think Marcella's father or any other family member would have done something without her knowledge, unless it was someone she was estranged from, like her uncle Charles Hatcher. Charles Hatcher was Floyd's brother, and he was also a serial killer. He claimed to have killed 16 people, which is entirely believable, but he has been definitively linked to at least five. He had been in a Nebraska psychiatric hospital in 1980, but he escaped. Though the official record said he escaped four days after the murders, apparently there are reasons people believe he had actually run off a few days before. About a month after he escaped, he was arrested in Lincoln, Nebraska, under an alias. And then a few months later, he was again arrested, but this time in Des Moines, Iowa. So we know he was in this Nebraska, Iowa, Missouri area 
at the time of the murders. Hatcher was caught again under his real name in August of 1982, when a staff member at a mental hospital in St. Joe, Missouri, realized he matched a description the police had put out. Two years later, he took his own life in prison. Hatcher's crimes were almost always sexually motivated, whereas there were not signs Rose or Roger had been assaulted or raped. His victims were also usually children. So while he wouldn't have targeted the couple necessarily for his own purposes, clearly he was okay with killing people. Now the question is, though, how would he have known where Roger was or that he was having an affair unless maybe his brother Floyd had told him? But we don't know how Floyd knew where Roger was, so we are getting a few too many steps of speculation away from our evidence. Let's look at a different angle. And this was the angle the police looked into almost to the point of tunnel vision. Prior to dating Roger, Rose broke up with a boyfriend named Danny. This was the complete opposite of an amicable split. Danny wanted to marry Rose and even bought her a ring, but she didn't like how he treated her daughter. She was afraid of his temper, and she was very upset that he was using drugs. So Rose kicked him out, and he responded to this by allegedly stalking her. Notes would be left on her car. She got harassing phone calls. She changed her locks, but Danny got into the house anyway. Another time she came home, and it looked like her house had been broken into. She believed Danny was behind all of this especially after she caught him and his friend parked down the street from her house. Then one day, Rose went outside and saw that her dog had died at the end of its lead. Though this could have been an accident, as that sometimes happens when dogs are tethered, Rose apparently thought Danny was behind that too. So Rose went to the police to make a report saying that she was being harassed by Danny and she felt threatened enough to say that if anything happened to her, Danny was responsible. And then weeks later, she was murdered. The thing is, Danny had a pretty good alibi. He worked the overnight shift 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., and his job was such that if he wasn't there, it would have been noticed since they needed him on the shift. I have to acknowledge that the bodies were not found until 1 p.m., so it's possible he could have hauled it up there after work, but how would he have known where she was staying? The Scene of the Crime podcast noted that Rose left her daughter with a friend who didn't usually babysit. It was so unusual that it took a while for everyone to figure out where her daughter was after they learned Rose was dead. The police even searched Rose's trunk, worried the toddler may be in there. It can be speculated that Rose may have purposely left her daughter with this friend since Danny wouldn't know where she was and couldn't do something to her to get back at Rose. And I'm bringing this up because if that is true, it stands to reason that the only person we know knew exactly what hotel Roger and Rose were staying at was a babysitter Danny would have no reason to talk to in order to learn where Rose was. 
It does strike me that if these murders had happened in Missouri, they may have built a circumstantial case against Danny due to his behavior leading up to the murders. But because of his work schedule and the distance to the murder site, it didn't fit. I mean, we're coming back to the same question that keeps popping into my head every time we look at someone known to Roger or Rose. Who knew they were there? The babysitter, who didn't do it, her family, who didn't have an apparent motive, and possibly one of Rose's brothers, who was a salesman from Minnesota and was in Council Bluffs at the time. Someone came forward years later saying that this brother told him he was going to go see his sister Rose the night of the murder, and he returned back very upset. This brother ended up adopting and raising Rose's daughter, so the theory would be that as her godfather and the person Rose designated to take her daughter if anything happened to her, he killed Rose in order to get custody. Now, one issue with this is that though he may not have 100% loved the idea of his sister having a baby young and prior to marriage, he and Rose were very close and he tried to support her every way he could. Maybe it was sometimes overbearing, but it seemed to come from a place of love. They did not have the greatest childhood and he stepped in as more of a father than a big brother. The other issue is again, the distance. Council Bluffs to the hotel and back is a six-hour round trip. It seems unlikely that he would have made it there, committed the murders, cleaned up, got away, went back to Council Bluffs, and no one knew he was gone for several hours. This is far from an exhaustive list of everyone in Roger and Rose's life who the police looked into. Notably, they looked into a brother-in-law of Rogers who was also a co-worker of his who also didn't seem to tell the same exact story every time he was interviewed. One time he'd remember hearing something, the next time he would say he never heard that, one time he was in one place, another time he was in another place. His alibi for the night was he was home with his wife sleeping. There is another explanation for his changing stories, and that was the fact that he was also trying to cover up his own affair, so it's a little hard to separate that from the motive to lie to cover up being a murderer. If you want a deep dive into all of the people who came on police radar in the investigation and a deeper look into this brother-in-law whose name was Mike, go listen to the Scene of the Crime podcast because they get into all of it. We are going to move on, though, and explore the possibility that this was a random crime. So let's go ahead and start with the bartender, Ron, who some reports say Rose may have had an argument with. Ron was a fairly new hire at the hotel, getting the job through his girlfriend, who also worked there. He worked the night of the murder, and he was on the premises at the time because, well, he was a living in his truck, which he parked in the back of the parking lot. It has been reported that the day after the murder, Ron abruptly left the area, leaving his paycheck behind. My first thought reading this was that maybe he was another victim. Maybe the killer had killed him and stolen his truck to get away. But Ron was alive and well, and this account wasn't even true. As reported by the Scene of the Crime podcast, Ron actually didn't leave the area until a month later. 
His relationship was on the rocks, and he had no stable living environment, so he decided to make a big change and start over. He enlisted in the army. He had spoken to the police before he left town. He was one of the many staff members who did a basic interview the weekend the bodies were found. Three years after the murders in 1983, Ron was interviewed again. One reason he came back on the radar was that, as the case was being looked at over the years, it was learned he had proximity to another Iowa murder. He worked at a Cedar Rapids mall in December of 1979 when Michelle Martinko was found dead in her car in the parking lot. That is a case I'm covering in an upcoming episode, so I'm not going to get too deep into it, except to say that the killer was not Ron, but they didn't know that at the time. A friend of Ron's had indicated to the police that Ron acted strangely after Michelle's murder and soon left Cedar Rapids. Ron wouldn't completely drop off the person of interest list for years, even though there was really nothing linking him to the crime, or at least nothing that didn't also apply to all of the hotel guests and the overnight staff. So now let's look at what if the killer wasn't connected to Rose or Roger or the hotel? What if this was the most random of all crimes? Now, the position of the room did make it a logical choice if this was randomly targeted. It was at the end of the hall, sharing a wall with only one other room, which would minimize witnesses, and it would be easy to escape unnoticed by going out the side door. It was also the farthest from the lobby. Perhaps the killer followed some guests inside that side door, maybe even rose after she had moved her car, and he didn't even need to worry about a key. Hotel robberies and break-ins are not unheard of, and there were actually two other similar cases at hotels that could possibly be connected to this one. The first one occurred in 1970 in Meridian, Mississippi. 23-year-old Jack McDonald had moved from Florida to Birmingham, Alabama, where he took a job that dealt with foreign car parts somehow. The company sent Jack on a business trip to Meridian. Jack stayed at the Travel Inn Motel. On Monday, October 26, 1970, he was seen having dinner with a man who had an accent described as an Irish or Scottish brogue. They were seen together until around 10.30 p.m. The next day, the housekeeper found Jack's body in his hotel room. His body was across the bed with his legs hanging off, almost in a kneeling position. His wallet was missing, but important here, a tube of toothpaste had been squeezed out into the toilet, and Jack had been killed with a hatchet-like weapon. But that was nearly 800 miles away and 10 years before Rose and Roger's murders. Even with the similarities, particularly that toothpaste detail, it wasn't immediately connected. So let's talk about another case, closer in both time and proximity. Two and a half months before the Amana murders, another traveling salesman was killed in a hotel and just 131 miles from the Holiday Inn. 
William Kyle checked into a Sheridan Inn in Galesburg, Illinois, that was just off the interstate, just like the Holiday Inn that Roger and Rose were at. He was found dead in his room the day before his 26th birthday. William was found face down in the bed with the lower half of his body hanging off, pretty much identical to how Jack McDonald had been found 10 years earlier. He, too, had been killed by a hatchet-like weapon. But that's not the end of the similarities. On the floor, in front of a chair, in the hotel room, were the contents of his wallet strewn about, just like with Roger Atkinson. Near the body was a tube of toothpaste that had been squeezed out. So we have three crime scenes of hatchet murders where the killer squeezed out toothpaste. The early reporting of the case said that there were homosexual overtones at the Galesburg crime scene that were not seen at the Amana scene, but they didn't get any more specific about what that meant. And I'm not entirely sure what it could have meant, specifically in the 1980s when it was reported. To me, the key similarity is the squeezed out toothpaste, because that's not something you commonly see at any crime scene, let alone three similar murder scenes all at hotels. There was no person these people had in common who could have targeted all four. As statistically unlikely as it is for people to be killed in hotel rooms by someone they don't know, that looks like a solid possibility here. And there is actually a person of interest under this theory, and that is a man named Raimundo Esparza. Esparza was in and out of prison for most of his life. He was a drifter who lived in Davenport, Illinois, which is an hour north of Galesburg, where the murder of William Kyle occurred. But we do know he was much closer to the hotel the night of the murder. On the last night William was seen alive, Esparza was caught lurking around the rail yards, and security called the police. They picked him up, but what they did was pretty much drive him out of town to Galesburg and drop him off. When Esparza was found at the rail yard, he had a bag or a belt of tools with him. Because he had worked in the sugarcane fields down south, it is possible heavy bladed tools used to harvest sugarcane were included in what he had. Multiple witnesses say they saw Esparza around the hotel that night, and he was even taken in for questioning. He talked to the police for 12 hours, but he was not focused on what they were asking him about. He spent more time talking about his life story, including his abusive childhood. The investigators would then drag him back on topic about the murder, and they'd feel like he was heading towards a confession, but then his train of thought would derail and he'd start talking about something else. Though they believed they had a circumstantial case against Esparza for the murder of William Kyle, there just wasn't enough for an arrest. But that wasn't for a lack of trying. There was something about the scene that nagged at the police. Even without knowing about the other two murder scenes, the toothpaste seemed to stand out. It was an odd detail, and it seemed to serve no purpose. It didn't cover up forensic evidence, and it's not like squeezing out toothpaste would have intimidated the victim. So why do it? They consulted a forensic psychiatrist to look at it from a behavioral angle. According to what the investigators in Galesburg told the show, DNA of a Murder, 
The official opinion was that the act of squeezing the toothpaste was an ejaculation simulation. So there was some type of sexual motivation in the killings, but the killer couldn't physically act on it, possibly due to drug use. So it was a simulation. Esparza did have a long history with drug use, including heroin. When it comes to Roger and Rose's killings and trying to link Esparza to it, it turned out he had been about 20 miles from the hotel Earlier on the day Roger and Rose arrived in town, he was documented as having been at the VA Medical Center in Iowa City. That puts Esparza closer to the crime scene than the police have put any other suspect or person of interest. This case has been through every phase of theories you can imagine. Split theories in the beginning that then led to intense investigations into Roger's side of things, and into Rose's. But now they're taking a very serious look at Raimundo Esparza. Esparza is dead, so as of 2021, they were looking into getting an exhumation order to get Esparza's DNA. Not much more has been reported since then. And this is actually something Rose's family complained about in the early days of the investigation. They weren't being kept in the loop. The police said it was in line with the state law that prohibited them from saying too much. So I looked it up. And Iowa law gives a long list of exceptions to public records requests, and that includes active investigations. So while the police have released the cold case information, both to the scene of the crime podcast and the TV show DNA of a Murder, current developments are still being kept quiet. But there is hope that modern forensics may solve these cases. In 2009, they tried to get DNA from a fingernail kit found in William's room. His wife said it wasn't his, but what they got was too degraded to test. Then in 2015, the investigators on Roger and Rose's case sent items in for analysis and developed a male DNA profile that was found on a towel that had been in the bathroom. This profile could very likely be the killer since the towel had been found also with blood on it. In the show DNA of a Murder, Paul Holes gives law enforcement his opinion on what should happen next in the case. In both the Galesburg and the Amana cases, he suggested which items he believed should be tested for DNA next. I think Paul has a reputation of being a crime scene investigator, but his start was back in the forensics lab. So I hope they're processing the evidence he pointed out. And I really hope some healing can come from the new look at the case, one that looks outside of Roger and Rose's friends and family members. Maybe some clouds of suspicion people have been living under for 40 plus years can be lifted. And with new DNA testing and possibly even familial DNA, this case and those of Jack McDonald from Mississippi and William Kyle from Illinois can hopefully finally be closed. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.